everyone, and welcome back to Safety. My name is Jill, and I'm an emergency medicine physician. On this episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that might be a little triggering for some of our listeners, so trigger warning inserted here, but one that I think is really important and we just can't ignore, and we want to address the topic of sexual assaults. Yeah, hi everybody. This is Jack. Welcome back to Safety. Yeah, sexual assault, it's such a, a broad topic, and it's definitely one of those topics where I feel like I've heard about it much more than I used to like five years ago, but I still don't feel like we talk about it enough. Agreed. You know, I think sexual assault is something that happens way too often and probably more often than most people even realize, but it's definitely happening more often than is ever reported. So we're still pretty scared to talk about it. Why do you think um, that a lot of sexual assault is underreported? I think one reason is it's really kind of a blurred line regarding exactly what constitutes sexual assaults. A lot of people know the common definition, and it seems pretty straightforward, right? But it's actually pretty complicated, and not everyone shares the same definition of what sexual assault actually is and what it means. Many of the perceptions surrounding what actually constitutes sexual assault are clouded by a person's bias and cultural upbringing. Yeah, I guess I never thought about it that way with cultural biases and the fact that people may view sexual assault differently. And, you know, it's certainly not a black and white issue. Why do you think these differences exist? I think one reason is actual sexual assault. It's it's more than just rape, right? So a lot of people mm-hmm. know, and that's the first thing that they think about is clearly rape is sexual assault, but there's many other forms that we'll talk about later today in our podcast. Also, you know, a lot of people have biases about sexual assault that are really deeply rooted in history. So if you think back even centuries, you know, women were viewed as property and rape of a woman or a girl was considered less of a crime against the victim, but more like a property crime endured by the victim's father or husband, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah, I mean, that does sound really crazy. But, you know, that was a while ago. Women today aren't really viewed as property anymore. Do you think that's kind of shifted the needle at all? Yes, we have. And thank goodness women are no longer viewed as property. But that still hasn't prevented injustice really endured by the victims of sexual assault over the years. If you think back up to the 1970s, although sexual assault cases were prosecuted, the focus of the case was more about the accuser and less about the accused. Mm. It wasn't really until 1975 that federal legislation was passed that limited the defendant's ability to probe into the sexual behavior, history, or reputation of the victim. Really prior to that, defendants could attack the victim's credibility by presenting evidence to smear their reputation. Wow, that's crazy. 1975? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, Yeah. it's just insane. I know, right? Like not that long ago. And if you think about how humiliating that must have been for a lot of victims, it really prevented a lot of people from coming forward to report sex crimes. And if you think about it, it was much more dire even for women of color. So a black woman wasn't even permitted to file rape charges against a white man until the 1960s. That is just insane. And to think that some of those changes only happened in the 70s, which isn't that far away. I imagine that some of that sentiment of being nervous to come forward because of, you know, having to air out some of the story um, is probably still prevalent today. Do you think that victims are more willing to come forward now? Or do you think a lot of victims are still understandably very nervous and unsure about coming forward? I think a lot are still nervous. You know, we're better in some regards, but in others, we're just the same. If you think back to 2017, when the first, you know, Me Too movement was born, Mm -hmm the world really rediscovered that we're still kind of fighting the same battle. So sexual assault is still prevalent, really statistically, back even in 2021, every 68 seconds, almost one per minute, an American was sexually assaulted. Even though victims of sexual assault are most commonly thought of as being female, it's just not the case. 
So researchers have also found that apparently one in six men have experienced sexual abuse or assault, either in childhood or as an adult. And even more shocking is the fact that most victims of sexual assault actually know their perpetrator. So the Me Too movement really brought forth the awareness that individuals from all walks of life, all gender, all color, all socioeconomic status, really like anyone, athletes, movie stars, up to including just regular high schoolers and college students are still being victimized and sexually assaulted. And unfortunately, most often by people that they know. I think that's such an important point to stress that sexual assault doesn't just happen to females. It happens to males and individuals of every gender and identity, because I feel like classically, it's mostly focused on women being sexually assaulted, which is important to think about. But I think now as more people are coming forward, we're understanding that this does happen kind of to everyone everywhere. So I love that point. I think it's also important for us to actually define what sexual assault is and kind of who made that definition. And how does this look to our high schoolers and our our college students who are listening to this podcast? So I think that is a good point that you make, Jack. And I think we should start by talking about Title IX. And that'll maybe give us a little bit more background. So Title IX is a federal legislation that prevents educational institutions that receive federal funding from discriminating on the basis of gender or gender identity. Wrapped into Title IX are the definitions of sexual assault. And this includes non-consensual sexual contact, like touching, kissing, up to and including non-consensual penetration or intercourse, so actual sex. Now, the problem is that the concept of consensual is not always shared by both parties involved. Yeah, you know, Jill, I am a doctor, but after listening to your definition, I know I'm definitely not a lawyer because I feel more confused than when we began. Let's just try and break it down a little bit. What does consensual really even mean in this context? So consensual and consent kind of go hand in hand. So consent means that both parties are engaging in an intimate sexual activity and they have to consent and make their intentions known to the other party. Thinking back to Rachel's first week live, we talk about how drunk consent is not consensual. Silence and just not saying no is not consensual. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was in high school, the the old adage was no means no when we were talking about this topic, does that still hold true today? I think a lot of us were taught no means no, but I have a big problem with no means no, because that really puts the onus on the victim to say, Mm -hmm. no, I'm not comfortable, which depending on the situation, some people might not be comfortable saying. Yeah, that can definitely be a hard thing to do. Right, exactly. So I really like yes means yes. And it's just like it sounds. Both parties have to absolutely and undeniably understand and agree to the sexually intimate act they're about to engage in. And really make sure the other individual has full understanding as well. Not only that, but at any point, the consent can be revoked. So if anybody changes their minds, they have to stop. It's no longer consent to proceed if somebody's uncomfortable. Any effort to continue is not consensual and constitutes sexual assault on the part of the aggressor. Yeah, I think I like that definition a lot more, too. I think yes means yes. And understanding that consent isn't just a a one-time discussion. It's a continuous process. And it can be revoked at any point in time. One of the biggest questions we get when we do Rachel's First Week Live is from audience members asking, what do I do if a friend comes to me saying that they were sexually assaulted? I think one of the best ways to answer that question is to hear from a courageous young lady who's willing to share her story with us today. After that, we have two experts to answer a few of our questions and dispel any other common myths surrounding sexual assault. Hi. My name is Seema, and I'm an emergency medicine pediatric resident at the IU School of Medicine. I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Lily, who has an incredible story of survival to tell. 
My name's Lily and I'm a victim of sexual assault. And I just want to tell you guys my story. When I was 18, I started working as a medical assistant in a nonprofit organization clinic who took in low-income patients, low-income families. So it was very, it felt really good to be there, to know that you you were helping your community. I grew up in a very Latino household where women are supposed to be very modest and doctors are just held in such high regard. You go to the doctor and you thank him profusely and he's just this great person. You know, initially it started very, what's the word? It started very innocent. And it's kind of what I call and know now that it's, you know, that whole grooming behavior. They're very kind to you. They're very nice. They tell you lots of compliments. You look so pretty today. Or It feeds that teenage ego of like, I've got it. This really smart man thinks I'm smart. And it slowly started turning into just a little bit more. Next thing I knew, he's telling me all of these things, you know, in my neck telling me, oh, you look so pretty today. It's just getting closer and closer in the distance between us is getting smaller. Like he's just starting to whisper things in my ear and making you feel like you're just this important person. And I'm 18. It's this doctor telling me I'm this great person. And it makes you feel just, it makes you feel important. It makes you feel special. It makes you feel like, oh my gosh, this, this person, he has an education, he's older, he knows what he's talking about. You slowly start realizing that the behavior is just not okay. It slowly starts turning more into calling me into inappropriate moments. It would be with patients in rooms sometimes, and he'd be making just obscene gestures while the patient's not looking. And when I was exiting a room or something, he'd be sticking his hand down my shirt. It's amazing because I worked there for about three months and he was only there once a week. And towards the end, I remember thinking, I don't want this person to come in. I don't want to see this person anymore. Cause I knew that when he came in, like I was just going to be uncomfortable all day. And it was almost like, what is he going to do next? He's already done this. He's already done that. He's already putting his hand on my shirt. Like it was so blatant to the point that I'm sure some of my coworkers must have seen something. So did you leave the job? What happened? I was fired, which is fine. Like I can't even tell you what a sigh of relief that was. My manager actually said like that they believed I had a relationship with him. Instead of saying like, hey, are you okay? You're only 18. Instead of saying like, are you okay? They were like, no, you're you're having sex with this person and you're consenting and you're disgusting and that's not okay. So we're letting you go. You know, it was very vilifying to me instead of him, which is crazy to me. But at that time, I just remember feeling like I, I couldn't tell anyone. I had a boyfriend and I couldn't tell him. I felt so guilty. I cared so much guilt about it because it was... It it felt like it was my fault, like I had invited it because I had allowed him to slowly start telling me these things 
And now it got to a point of no return where it's like, he's doing these things. And I didn't say no initially, like when I should have. And now it feels so late and I can't tell anyone. Like it's so isolating. For the longest time, I actually feel like I just blocked a lot of it out and and didn't deal with it afterwards just because I felt, like I said, so guilty. I just felt like if I told my boyfriend, he'd be upset. And if I told my coworkers, they'd believe the rumor that was going around that I was dating this man. There's nothing you can do about it because you feel powerless. There's this man who he's a doctor. He's in high regard at the clinic that you work at. And you're, you're what? You're a medical assistant. No one's going to believe you. Did you tell your parents or did you try to convince your coworkers differently? No, not at all. There was huge parts of me that felt like I couldn't say anything because he was my superior. He was someone that I worked under. So I just, I thought that the best thing to do at that time was just to stay quiet. I didn't tell anyone, not even my best friend at the time. No one's going to believe you, you know? So you just feel very... You feel very isolated. You feel very scared to even say anything. And you just kind of almost accept it. And it's so bad. What are some of the warning signs that someone is being too aggressive or their motivations are not pure? Some of the signs that I started picking up on are just this person starts favoring you more. They start asking you to do more tasks for them just so you can be around them a little bit more. Or they start asking you to do certain tasks that didn't need to be done but were done in a private room so that you could be in this room with this person or even as little as just whispering things in your ear like that that in and of itself is so inappropriate like in what workplace is that ever appropriate (laughs) you know I don't care where you work or where you're at that's just that should have been my warning signs but I didn't have the voice or the tools to set those boundaries. Like I said earlier, I just felt so powerless in that moment. How did all of this affect your mental health and your future relationships with men? I was so naive to a lot of things. And like I said, I think at that time, I kind of just blocked a lot of it out and didn't actually like deal with what happened. Like, I think I actually just like, mentally put a block on it and was like, nope, not going to think about it. Nothing happened. I didn't do anything. I, I kind of convinced myself, like I wasn't happy at that job anyways. Like let's just move on and do something else. It definitely does something to you and to you mentally and kind of molds you into the next relationships that you go into. Cause I, I kind of have had relationships like that where it's like very, one-sided and they could be a little abusive. So they're definitely patterns, you know, that you bring into other things. To this day, I still deal with the mental health repercussions of that. When you finally were able to start working through this trauma, how did it feel? Like it was like ripping a band-aid off. Like the wound never healed. It was just there. After that initial pain, what did you do? What did you feel? okay, like this happened, how are we going to deal and like move forward? You know, and I've, I've been going to therapy for years for, you know, other things. So that was definitely one of the things that I brought up. 
at my therapy session when I went back and I was just like, listen, I've put this thing from years back in the back of my mind. And, you know, I just allowed myself to go through the feelings to go through all of those emotions that I probably should have had at that time, the feeling of, of it was not me. I didn't do anything and letting myself be emotional about it and just actually processing what happened. So if you could go back and give your 18 year old self advice, what would you tell them? I think I would just tell her, you know, tell someone, anyone, anyone that'll listen, you know, there's, I've actually met people outside of that organization that have worked with him who have told me that I was definitely not the only one that he was doing things like that too. And that there was definitely other girls and other women that he was being very sexually aggressive with. And, you know, you can't help but think like, had I said something then, could I have stopped other women from going through it or could I you know there's a lot of coulds you know that go through your head yeah it's true the what-ifs can be toxic but they're also hard to avoid what about that feeling of not being empowered to do something you're not as powerless as you think and in situations like that I think we forget that if they haven't already been caught for doing something like this they're probably equally as scared of you. You know you're going to keep doing something that's not right because you don't get caught. And it's that high of not getting caught. But eventually, everyone has to face what they did. So had I said something then, would he had to have faced it sooner? Maybe. And is that maybe worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I... I, but do I blame 18 year old me for not saying anything? Hell no. I was scared, scared, you know, so scared, beyond scared. Um, which is why the, you know, so many times this stuff just goes unreported because that person has just done such an amazing job of instilling that fear in you of like, if you say something, I'm the person in power. Who are they going to believe? You know what I mean? Any other words of advice? I think first and foremost, trust your gut. It's always right. Something feels off. If someone's making advances at you that you're like, I don't like it, definitely keep an eye out on things like that. Someone touching you feels uncomfortable. If someone says something that makes you uncomfortable, say something. I think we forget how much power like our words actually have setting boundaries with that person and just being like, Hey, you know what? I don't appreciate you coming that close to me or I didn't like when you did that. Please stop doing that. Set very firm boundaries. Cause I think that was one of my problems is that in that moment I wasn't like, Hey, you know, I don't like that. Like, can you please give me some space or can you please, you know, like, don't touch me. I, I didn't say any of those things. I didn't set those clear boundaries, let someone know what's happening. I feel like talking to people helps you kind of gain some of that power back. And it doesn't like give so much power to that person. And you're able to 
be a little stronger in your words when you're talking to someone, when you're trying to set boundaries, you know, which is why I think therapy is so important. You know, you go and you talk to someone, you tell them your problems and they give you the tools to come back and and build those foundations and those boundaries. I, I feel like that's the most important part in that, in that sense. So Lily, what are you doing with your life now? Have you found good people to be around now? You know, I absolutely have. Um, I actually work with a nonprofit organization now that helps um, women in domestic violence situations. Um, it's called the Our Place Healing Hearts Foundation. And we, we basically work with the underserved LA community for women who are in domestic violence situation looking to leave, we provide them with like interim housing, baby needs, food, clothing. Um, so that has just been such touching and amazing work. And knowing that I look back on all of this stuff and I remember thinking how incredibly alone I felt and wishing that there was someone there for me. And knowing that I could be a part of an organization that provides that for women and empowers them. And we're constantly trying to work on empowering these women and knowing that they're not alone. You're not alone. We're never alone. There's someone out there that's going to listen to you and believe your story. Thank you, Lily, for sharing your incredible story and how you were able to overcome such trauma at such a vulnerable age and now use your experience to help others. Wow. Thank you, Lily, for sharing your story. Lily's story just goes to prove that sexual assault can happen anywhere and even when multiple people are around, which is really scary. Before we introduce our experts, let's take another look at the definition of sexual assault. Per the United States Department of Justice, sexual assault is any non-consensual sexual act prescribed by federal, tribal, or state law, including when the victim lacks capacity to consent. I think it's important to realize that the legal definitions for terms like rape, sexual assault, and sexual abuse vary from state to state. I think it's also important to remember that sexual assault is any unwanted sexual advance. You know, Lily's story is just a small representation of sexual assault, which just goes to show that sexual assault can come in so many different forms like we discussed earlier. It's more than just unwanted sexual intercourse, but really includes any unwanted sexual advance. So just go back to your gut. If it just doesn't feel right, it's assault. Yeah, and I also just wanted to say thanks to Lily and uh, Seema for helping us understand this more clearly. Lily, thank you so much for sharing. I know it's not easy to do it all, and we just applaud your strength, and, and just thanks for helping us understand this concept a little bit better. I also just piggyback into what you're saying, Jill. I think as a guy, too, it's important to understand that sexual assault does happen to men, and it happens probably a lot more often than people think it does. I know we mentioned earlier in the pod that one in six men have been sexually assaulted in some capacity. So just making sure that when we're talking about this, thinking about this, thinking about our, our friends that are males out there, that this does happen to them as well. So now I think we're going to switch gears a little bit. And we have two amazing guests. They're actually both returning guests to the pod, which is exciting for us. They're serving as our experts today to help us kind of understand things a little bit better. First up, we have Barb Bachmeyer, who actually joined us on our episode of Human Trafficking. She is a nurse practitioner and is a forensic nurse examiner here in downtown Indy. And we also have Christy Fogg, who's another returning guest, who is a licensed clinical social worker and therapist who specializes in adult and also adolescence. She joined us on our podcast on mental health and the bystander effect. So this is podcast number three for you. So very exciting. Welcome, ladies. We're so happy to have you on the pod. Thank you. 
So I have a few questions that I'd hope you'd be able to answer for our listeners today. So thanks for being with us. I'll start with you, Christy. I understand that not every situation is exactly the same. And oftentimes these situations can be, let's just say sticky. So we recently did one of our in-person programs of Rachel's First Week Live at an Indiana sorority. And some of the sisters said sometimes they meet a guy at a party that although they're interested in, the guy kind of starts to come on heavy and too strong. The sisters were wanting to know how to let the guy down easy, maybe with someone they're interested in, but when things start to get out of control and they feel uncomfortable, they don't want to hurt his feelings. So while trying to stay safe, how can they go about letting the guy know that maybe his advances are unwanted? You know, for me, there are a few things to consider when this guy is starting to come on too strong. So the first question is, are you uncomfortable? And then two, are you in an unsafe situation? So if you answer yes to either of those questions, that should be a big giant red flag that you need to take care of yourself and you need to take some sort of action. Taking care of you is the number one priority. So I understand wanting to keep a guy interested, but if you're uncomfortable with the advances or you even feel threatened, it's better to leave or to put some distance between them and yourself, if possible. Remember that strength in numbers is really important. So before you go to a party, commit to having a buddy where you both look out for one another, have friends' numbers saved in your phone so you can quickly text or call for help. Also, like we said earlier, don't be afraid to say no to things that you're uncomfortable with. So using Lily's story, for example, she felt stuck. She felt powerless. She was only 18 years old. This doctor was making advances towards her, which at first was flattering, but then she started to feel uncomfortable and she started to feel unsafe. So, you know, if I could just give a little nugget of advice, it would be don't be afraid to assert yourself and advocate for yourself and what you need. I'm a huge trust your gut person. I've talked about this on the podcast before. So if something doesn't feel right in your gut, trust that. Now, I feel so sad for Lily and for other women who are in situations like she found herself or even different situations like we've been talking about, like sexual assault is a spectrum. So Lily didn't do anything wrong. And she was being groomed. This person in power knew exactly what he was doing. So unfortunately, there are men out there, both in college, in the career field, that will push and push and push. And don't be afraid to say no or ask for help. Yeah, I think those are some awesome points. I definitely remember in college when I was dating my now wife, her sorority had a bunch of hand signals they would use when they would go out. Just a quick check-in, just to say if they kind of saw something across maybe the party that looked like a weird interaction, one of their sisters could kind of give them a sign. I'm not at liberty to tell what the signs are because they're sorority secrets. And then their sisters could kind of signal back like, oh, this is okay, or no, this isn't okay. And then their sisters would come kind of break up the situation and kind of pull the girl away, which I thought was a really great mm-hmm. system. So um, that's definitely something all of us could use. That's genius, actually. Yeah, um, they're smart. <laughs> we always do the bathroom buddy check also. So we would go to the bathroom in groups or something like that and just be like, hey, do you need to go to the bathroom? And that's always kind of the best way to just get out of the situation and take somebody with you. Yeah, love that too. The bathroom is always a, a sacred place. Barb, this next one's for you. Kind of piggybacking about one of the the most common questions we get in Rachel's First Week Live. What happens if someone thinks they've been sexually assaulted, but they aren't really sure if they've been sexually assaulted? What's the next best step? Well, I would like to say that there's a cookie cutter solution to this, but it's going to really depend 
on the situation. I mean, if the individual realizes that they woke up and they feel like something has happened, they don't know quite what to do. I always say, number one, look around. Are you in a safe area? Do you need to get into a safe area? And then after that, I always recommend call somebody that you trust, whether that be a hotline or a friend. You kind of want to start bringing her in a little bit and calming them down because usually if they've been sexually assaulted, their hormones may start to get out of whack. They might start to experiencing the neurobiology of trauma. So I always say, you know, start to slow things down, get somewhere where you can talk to. I think that it's always important that you call, especially a friend to accompany you if you do decide to go get evaluated. But I'm a big advocate. Obviously, I'm a healthcare provider. I believe that, you know, Every patient that believes they have been sexually assaulted or have been sexually assaulted, that they do seek medical care because we can help talk them through a few things and provide options for them, either medical care they want to receive or if they want to go forward and report. Really, the intervention on the road to recovery starts at the initial encounter, you know, either with law enforcement or health care, just to help that person make some decisions because they don't know what's available to them. Yeah, Barbara, I think you make really great points. And I think even if you're not sure if it happened to you, but you feel like maybe something happened or going back to what Christy said, if your gut tells you something isn't right, I think it's always a safer bet just to seek care. And the emergency department is absolutely a safe place you can do so. So, you know, what should a student do? Maybe not if they were sexually assaulted, but what if one of their friends tells them that they've been sexually assaulted? So again, I would always encourage, you know, that particular friend that came to you and disclosed to you, if they're not in a safe place, if they're calling you, ask them if they're in a safe place, if you can come pick them up. I would recommend coming to their aid and and talking with them and offer to take them to wherever they would like to go at that point. Would they like to report or do they feel they just want to get examined to make sure that they're going to be okay? I think one of the biggest roadblocks I think a lot of people come into is maybe they they do realize they've been sexually assaulted and maybe they're thinking about wanting to come in and maybe get an exam or talk to law enforcement. Uh, But there, a lot of people have a fear that they may get in trouble for reporting a sexual assault. I think especially in those situations where there's a power imbalance between the two parties, or maybe they're under 21 on college and maybe they were at a party and they were drinking. So would you get in trouble for reporting sexual assault? And kind of what about if you're under 21 and at a party and that's where it happened to happen? So obviously we see a a good percentage of adolescents and um, young adults that are uh, less than 21 years of age. And so I always tell them off, I'm a a healthcare provider. I'm I'm not the cops. You're not going to get in trouble. Whatever you say to me is going to be held in confidence unless you give me permission to speak to whoever Mm -hmm. to disclose. So this is a safe zone. Nothing's going to happen here, but I'd like to be able to explain your options of what you can and cannot, you know, whatever services you want or don't want, or if you want us to help you connect to the community, we can do that also for you. But if it is a minor, we are obligated to inform that minor that because they are a minor and they're reported a crime, we are mandated reporters and we will have to notify law enforcement. But there is not going to be any punitive actions taken against the individual that presents saying that they were sexually assaulted. That's all really good information to know. And, you know, we've talked a lot about reporting sexual assault, but what exactly does that involve? Like, does the student have to identify their perpetrator if they don't want to? 
It depends on after we explain to the patient what their options are, if they do want to report versus they choose not to report at that time. Obviously, if they're making a police report, if they're sincere about moving forward in the criminal justice process, they are going to have to identify their assailant because due process in an investigation is going to require talking to all witnesses and potential assailants. But at this point, even if they come into us and saying, I don't want to say who it was, sometimes they opt not to have a medical forensic exam. They just opt to have medical care where we do a head-to-toe evaluation and we assess them for any potential injury or infections and we treat appropriately. And they don't have to tell us the perpetrator's name. They can uh, participate or receive as much care as they want. We try to empower the patient that this is your choice now. You tell us what help that you would like, and um, we will deliver those services to the best of our ability. And then, Barb, what would happen if a student was assaulted a long time ago, but maybe they felt really scared at the time, but then later on, maybe they felt a little bit less scared and um, wanted to come forward later on? So obviously, there are laws that will vary from state to state and when the statute of limitation runs out, but that doesn't prevent anybody from coming forward and speaking to either a counselor or to a health care provider what happened to them. I think at any point after a sexual assault that it is important that an individual does get a thorough medical evaluation looking for infectious diseases that may not be apparent or may not exacerbate themselves for a couple of years, sometimes like syphilis or hepatitis or things like that. So we still always encourage those folks that this is good that you came to us, and then we'd like to connect you to community services or to help you identify potential counselors or therapists if you choose to want to talk to someone about this. You know, it's not uncommon for people to start therapy months or even years after a sexual assault. I think just one piece of advice I would say is it's especially important to tell your therapist that you're working with that you have been sexually assaulted, no matter how long ago it was. Even if you're not sure if or how it impacts you present day, it's important for us as therapists to have so that we best know how to help you. So I can't tell you how many times a client has come in and and I've been working with them and all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, it's probably important for me to tell you that, you know, in college I was raped or um, I had a workplace situation where I think I might've been sexually assaulted. And I'm like, yeah, that's super important information (laughs) for me to know. Because if you're struggling with anxiety or depression or just anything at all, any reason why you might be coming to therapy, it could be linked to the traumatic event or there could be present-day impact from that traumatic event. So it's not always the case, but I think it's worth processing and unpacking in a safe space with your therapist. And so I would just always say, like, make sure that you share that information. Yeah, Christy, I was kind of curious, too. I'm, I'm sure you've dealt with this probably more than you like to in your in your professional career. What do you think is the biggest hurdle for kids maybe in high school or in college and just getting in the door for therapy? Because I'm sure a lot of them want to get into therapy, but it is it can be a kind of intimidating place as somebody who's gone to therapy myself. So what do you think of is the biggest hurdle that they face and how do they get over it? Especially for those that are victims of sexual assault, I would say, you know, the big hurdle is just the shame and the fear of telling their story and having to relive it. I would also say like a lot of people, a lot of clients that I've encountered have questioned like, 
was I actually assaulted? Because again, we talk about how there's a spectrum to what's considered sexual assault. And so, you know, I usually define that for my clients. like It's any unwanted sexual advances. So if that's anything at all that you did not want that was not consensual. And so I think that definitely is a roadblock too, where clients are like, I'm not sure if I was sexually assaulted. So do I need help? Do I not need help? You know, and I think just the fear of of having to tell someone what happened to them. I think that's a that's a very scary thing. And I think, you know, as a therapist, to be able to hold space for someone to share such a vulnerable thing and such a, a hard thing to go through. Do you have to get a medical exam if you go to the hospital? No, that's what the beauty part of this is that empowering a patient when they've experienced sexual violence, that we get to sit down with them and talk to them about their options. And one of those options are is that you can have a medical exam, which is basically a head-to-toe evaluation treating you for potential injuries or infections, or pregnancy prophylaxis, antiviral treatment if you believe the perpetrator may be at high risk for HIV, or you can have what we call a medical forensic examination. So, Barb, we've talked about, you know, medical exams, forensic exams. Can you go into a little bit more detail? Like, what does the forensic exam actually entail? And what would happen if you show up and and ask for one? What are you actually going to have to go through while you're there? Obviously, we will do swabbing based upon the history that the individual provides us, whether that be oral, vaginal, or rectal. And if there's any indication of sucking or biting or kissing anywhere, we'll swab in those particular areas. We also use an adjunct tool called an um, alternative light source that it's an ultraviolet light that, you know, we shine on the individual's body. And if there's any type of uptake, we swab that area, which uptake meaning if it's fluorescing like a yellow area, that could be potential semen or saliva, but it also could pick up soaps, lotions, detergents. So we never know what it is. We just go ahead and swab it and we put it in in the evidentiary um, collection kit. We also, with the individual's clothing, based upon if she had those on at the time of the assault, we will collect those. But if a lot of times individuals have already changed clothes, so we take the garment that's closest to their anal genital region and we preserve those. And of course, if we do have to collect their clothes, we send individuals home with sweat. So there's that myth that they have to go back home in a hospital gown. That's not true at all. They'll be provided clothing once they leave the emergency department. Also, it's important for timing when the assault happened. That will determine if we're going to collect in any particular area. By the best standards evidence collection through the National Institute of Justice, they recommend an oral assault. We can collect um, up to 48 hours. And if it's a vaginal assault, we have 120 hours. And if it's an um, anal assault, it's usually 72 hours. Now, there has been some good research out there that shows that if there's any type of biting, licking, kissing, or anything like that, we can actually collect samples off the body of those areas up to 96 hours, and that's even after showering. We do still collect evidence even though they have showered, so that's not a deterrent for us. Again, if they don't want to notify law enforcement at that time, we can preserve the evidence and it will get sent to a storage facility until the individual feels comfortable about reporting. And if they don't, then, you know, by statute, there's ways you can get rid of the evidence if the individual doesn't come forward at a prescribed period of time. It sounds like if you were to kind of condense everything, 
if you feel like you're the victim of sexual assault and you're kind of even remotely considering the possibility of involving law enforcement, definitely great to get to the emergency room to make sure that you're medically safe, but then also getting to the emergency room sooner rather than later and trying not to shower um, and trying to bring some of those original clothes would give the best chance of getting good evidence, it sounds like to me at least. Obviously, they'll have the same options afforded to them, a medical exam versus a medical forensic exam. Obviously, in a medical examination, because of the gender anatomical differences, obviously, there's going to be different areas of collection, and there's probably going to be some medications that you wouldn't offer a male patient if it was like Plan B, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, But things you need to consider if they're transgender and they're identifying as a male but still have their reproductive organs, you definitely do have to talk to them about pregnancy prophylaxis. So, you know, Barb, whenever we started the podcast, we talked about Title IX, the federal legislation, which is still kind of this vague, nebulous idea to me. So can you give us a little bit of inside scoop as far as Title IX in action? Like, what if a student is going to report a sexual assault that happened on campus? What does that look like with Title IX? The sexual assault advocate that is employed by the university that if the individual does wish to go and speak to them about options there on campus that they can report either anonymously or they can help the individual with several things. One of those is if the assailant is in the same dorm or apartment building that's owned by the university, they can initiate action where the assailant would have to move out of that dorm or apartment. Also, if they're in, have a class together, the university can make arrangements where the assailant would be removed from that class where the patient is in already, and he'll have to find a different class, or, or I don't know how they do it if they, if they drop the class, but they will not allow him to be in the same classroom as her. And then a third thing that can, they can help her with is obtain a civil protection order, and that you do not have to have a criminal case ongoing. This is something that you can obtain through the civil courts that allows you to protect yourself, which means it's like a stay-away order that there can be, and the assailant is served with this protection order. I actually have a couple questions, uh, maybe geared towards you, Christy. So uh, what resources do you recommend that people seek if they've been a victim of sexual assault? Yeah, I would say if you've been the victim of sexual assault, like please seek professional help. Especially, I know we're kind of geared towards high school and college-age students in this Mm -hmm. podcast, so there are plenty of resources available at school, on campus, and also off. Your school counselors, a therapist, they can help you process the assault and the impact of the assault. So sometimes victims of sexual assault can develop PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, um, symptoms afterwards. And so let me just kind of tell you briefly what that can look and feel like. So... PTSD symptoms include reliving the event, sometimes through nightmares or flashbacks, having physical symptoms of anxiety. So your heart races, you're sweating, you can't focus, you can't turn your mind off. Mm -hmm. You may avoid situations that remind you of the event. You may avoid certain places on campus. You may get super triggered if you go by a place that reminds you of the assault. You may have really negative thoughts um, and emotions such as shame, guilt, feelings of emptiness, feelings of numbness or hopelessness, an increase in anger, agitation. You may be crying more. You may feel jittery or on edge. There's also you know, a very high likelihood of an increase in depression, 
you know, loss of pleasure and activities that make you usually experience joy. So all that to say, if you're experiencing any of those symptoms, I would say reach out for help. Therapists are not required to report sexual assaults if you were over the age of 18 and you don't want to, so you are protected and your confidentiality is protected. And there are specific trauma therapies available that can help people who are victims of sexual assault. So one is EMDR, another is brain spotting, CBT can also help. Basically, these therapies help you decrease the amount of triggers that you may experience due to the assault. So in addition, just talk therapy and talking and processing through what happened to you and all of the feelings and the fears and the regret and the shame and and everything that you may be going through can be super helpful. You know, telling someone your story and feeling validated is really powerful and that experience can be really healing. So just remember like there is plenty of help out there available. You don't have to go through this alone. Thank you so much, Barb. And thank you so much, Christy. Love to have some repeat guests back on the pod. We really appreciate all the helpful information you all have provided. To our listeners, we really hope that this podcast was useful to you and that you feel more empowered with the information that we provided. Remember that you can always report an assault to the authorities by calling 911, and you can always call the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. In addition to 911 and the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline, you can always go to your nearest emergency room, somewhere on your college campus, or even just talking to a close friend that you trust. Just know that no matter what, if unfortunately sexual assault does happen to you, you're not alone and it's not your fault. And there's a lot of great resources out there that can help you get through this. Or if you just need to help a friend out who's going through something, you can help provide these resources to them. Safe Tea is brought to you by Rachel's First Week. Executive producer, Mike Wilson from Airborne. Sound engineer, Ben Vauder. And a very special thanks to American Medical Response, NASCAR, and healthcare initiatives for their financial support of this podcast. Visit us on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter at hashtag Rachel's First Week. Don't forget the A in Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. We want to hear from you, so contact us at rachelsfirstweek.org. Don't forget to subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Safe Teeth. This is Georgia signing off. See you next time.